Welcome to On Mike, conversations from Northgate Hall, home of the University of California, Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. I'm Ed Wasserman, Dean of Berkeley Journalism. As one of the nation's top journalism programs, we regularly invite the world's best reporters, writers, and documentarians to talk about the stories behind their stories. This week, we welcome Dean Baquet, editorial chief of the New York Times. Dean Baquet is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and one of the nation's most respected and influential editors. In today's episode, I sit down with Dean to discuss the New York Times' coverage of Donald Trump during and since the 2016 election and the future of fact-based journalism. I think if we get so caught up in Donald Trump won because not enough stories were written about X, tons of stories were written about X. I think Donald Trump won because there was something going on in the country that we didn't understand and still probably sort of don't quite understand. It's On Mike with me, Edward Wasserman, in conversation with Dean Baquet. Um, so let me start with, that. just as all news nowadays starts with Donald J. Trump, um, he presents so many challenges yeah. to customary journalistic practice, it's hard to know where to begin. Um, but l- let me just cut through it and ask you kind of a seminal question, which is, if you had it to do over again, would you have covered the 2016 election differently? Sure. I'm not sure we would have covered Trump himself differently because we, I mean, we did a lot of stories about Trump and women he made uncomfortable. We did a lot of examinations of his finances. What I would have done differently, I don't think the New York Times, actually I, don't, I think most news organizations, did not have a handle on how much turmoil there was in the country, how much the country was sort of disaffected by the, by the people who, who were running for president. The evidence of that, by the way, was not just Trump. The evidence was that essentially an elderly Democratic socialist gave Hillary Clinton the established candidate a run for her money. That said pretty clearly the country was in turmoil and was desperate to shake things up. And I don't think we quite saw that. I mean, newspapers and journalists play by a rule book, um, unfortunately. But we, it's not that we play by a rule book because we want to. You just, if you do the same thing for 200 years, a rule book develops. And I think, we, I, think, I think this election sort of threw that rule book off. I don't think we had a handle on, how, on just how, how much of a hangover there was from the um, financial crisis, how much anger there was in the country. If you look at our coverage of Trump, it was pretty rugged. But I don't think our coverage of, of the turmoil in the country was as strong. So in light of that turmoil, had you given it enough weight, it wouldn't have affected the way you looked at Trump? The amount of attention you gave to him? I think we would have, if we had done, you know, hindsight, the cliche, I think we had to do it over again. Sure, I guess it would have changed our coverage of Trump because we would have been covering more of the reaction to Trump than Trump himself. Does that make sense? I think we would have, we would have understood better that the country just was not behaving the way it usually behaves in elections. Bernie Sanders was the first signal of that, and Donald Trump was the dramatic, you know, final powerful symbol of that. And I don't think we had a handle on that. Did you have reason to reflect on the propriety of the coverage of other media, Trump? In particular, I'm I'm thinking of Mm -hmm. something that Frank Rooney wrote in your paper. Other people have written it. I've written it. The notion that they gave him an outsized amount of exposure in the belief that his clownishness 
and its utter unsuitability to be president would speak for itself. Mm -hmm. And in, instead, that exposure conferred stature on him. He became the central, pivotal yeah. figure in, in the campaign. Yeah. I think, I, because nobody thought he could win, and if you find anybody who says they thought he could win, don't believe him. He was like, I'm, I don't want to say comic relief. He was, doing too much, he was doing too well for that. But I think he was a great show. And I think television found that show alluring. We, we did, too. But, I, but I, to be honest, I think television did more because he was a better television show. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a mistake, and it's a, it's a big mistake to think that Donald Trump won because of his press coverage. I think that's missing something large that happened in the country in 2016. I'm not saying... I'm, I'm, I admitted 200 times that, the, that my paper could have done better. But I think that's too easy an answer. And I think that answer is denies that millions of Americans voted for him, most of whom don't read the New York Times, by the way. I think, I think if we don't stop and say, what were the forces that drove this election? And if we convince ourselves the forces that drove the election were because he got a lot of television time, I think that's missing it. I think this was larger than that. I think this was a country that was anxious about the economy, anxious about what they thought was a, was a social change driven by the coasts. Um, I think this is a country that feels disaffected by the coasts. I think this is a country that was more divided than we know. I think that Fox News contributed that, to that division, but the division was there and they walked right in. I think if we get so caught up in Donald Trump won because not enough stories were written about X, tons of stories were written about X. I think Donald Trump won because there was something going on in the country that we didn't understand and still probably sort of don't quite understand. It's been suggested that um, the mainstream press, of which the Times is the most authoritative, did Trump a tremendous favor in its search for even-handedness in the way it dealt with the complaints and the criticisms of Hillary Clinton. Because so much of what was written about Trump was critical, because he was doing so many things that deeply deserved criticism, um, there was a sense that to balance the ledger, equivalent weight needed to be placed on sins that were incomparably less egregious. In order for in order to avoid the criticism that the ledger was being was being yeah. uh, put into imbalance yeah. uh, in Trump's disfavor. Yeah, I, I have a sort of a complicated answer to that. I do think that structure um, has not always served us well. At the right moments in American history, that structure has been blown up. Go back and read the coverage of of Vietnam. And if you read David Halberstam's front page stories in the New York Times from that era, or if you read Gay Talese's stories about the South in the New York Times magazine, and I'm only mentioning the New York Times because I've studied it a lot, those were stories that just exploded the crap the, the, on the one hand or on the other hand. The moment deserved it. Um, but I still think we fall back on it too much. I don't think, though, that we overcompensated with Hillary Clinton. Whenever I say that, I get booze. Um, you know, look, she was a person who had been in the public spotlight for a generation. She had, there were tremendous, there were, there were 
questions to be raised about her time as Secretary of State that were worth raising. Um, we didn't create the investigation into her emails. There was, a, there was a criminal investigation into her emails by the FBI. I think that if, if the leading candidate, if the nominee for a party is under criminal investigation, that's a story to pursue, be pursued aggressively. I would still argue if you laid the coverage of Hillary Clinton next to the coverage of Donald Trump, I mean, it was the coverage of Donald Trump was decidedly harder hitting. Because, to be frank, there was more stuff to write about. Still, we had a tremendous amount of attention paid to the server mm-hmm. without there being any underlying allegation that there was a compromise of national security. Then the DNC email hacking, which yeah. was nothing but embarrassing. It yeah. really exposed and illuminated nothing. And, but the, the overall, the cumulative weight of that was to cast a shadow over her honesty and integrity. I mean, it wasn't. Um, first off, the hacked, I mean, the stuff, the Podesta's hacks, there were revelations in there. I mean, there were revelations about her speeches. There were revelations that I don't think were insignificant. All, all that's been lost with the passage of time, but there were revelations about you know, her, her speeches, her private speeches to wealthy, to wealthy business people and what she said to them. The most powerful criticism of Hillary Clinton, as was with Bill, was that, I'm not saying this is criticism I buy, but it was criticism <clears throat> that was public, which was that they, you know, liked being around wealthy people. Do I think that that, do I think that, that was in the class with the stuff we revealed about Donald Trump? Of course not. I don't, I don't think that was the case at all. Um, I don't think so at all, no. If I, if I can add one, one thing. Yeah. Um, of course, if we, I mean, n- now we get into the great flaw of journalism. And the great flaw? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many great flaws, but there is one powerful flaw of journalism, which is that you write what you know in the moment. Of course, if we knew, if I knew, that those Podesta emails were the result of a hack by Russian intelligence, possibly furthered by people in the Trump campaign, I, that would have been a much better story than, <laughs> than the other, just, the, just for the record. <laughs> Granted. Um, <laughs> I was reflecting on what another uh, six years of Trump in the White House might do to the media. Um, and I think... It would, re- it would really exhaust us. <laughs> well, okay. I'm wondering about whether there are new habits that are being developed. And, and other people have written kind of eloquently about this, and increasingly. The question is whether there, is a, there are limits to adversarialism. It, Obviously, you don't want to normalize behavior yeah. that you're worried <clears throat> then become a fixture of our political yeah. culture. Yeah. But here, this is very interesting. It, it's a quote from this a guy I wasn't familiar with. His name is Michael Morell, and he was former uh, an acting CIA director. Yeah. Right. And here's the quote. It's a little long, but you know, when Hugo Chavez was first elected president in Venezuela in 1998, there was no political opposition of which to speak. The opposition was in disarray. There was no opposition leader to stand up and provide an alternative vision to that being pursued by Chavez. 
in its place, the Venezuelan media became the political opposition. And in so doing, the media lost its credibility with the Venezuelan people. It was a huge loss for Venezuela. That is a risk right here in America right now. I believe that objective, fact-based journalism has never been as important as it is to the future of our democracy. But in order to be effective, journalists cannot take sides or even appear to take sides. It is only about our future. He's completely right. I don't want to be the leader of the opposition to Donald Trump. It's, this, is, this, is, this is perhaps the hardest thing about navigating this era. A big percentage of my readers, and I hear from them a lot, want me to lead the opposition of Donald Trump. They don't quite say it that way, but what they say is, why quote his tweets? Why go to his press conferences? Why not, you know, we, why, why not just you know, call him a liar every day? Why not essentially just take him out and beat him up? What are you waiting for? And I feel very, I think that would be, I, I, I agree with, with Mike Morrell, I think that would be the road to ruin for a bunch of reasons. But to me, the most powerful one is if you become the leader of the opposition, eventually the people who you're aligned with come to power, right? Eventually, the people who want Donald Trump out come to power. And then you're just their chump. No, I, th- I don't, I don't want to be. It's a tricky thing to navigate. We have never, I mean, I, I, I ordered the New York Times to, to call him a liar on the front page. We've never done that. It was, it was... But you have done that. We have done it. But, I mean, we'd never done that before. I don't think the New York Times had ever used the word lie in, in reference to, at the time, he was the Republican nominee. I don't think we had ever... In that moment, to not have done it would have been dishonest. I mean, the incident was, it was the birther incident. He had spent years saying that Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States. He even said, I hired private detectives, and they've come back with interesting stuff. And then suddenly, when pushed, he said, okay, I believe he was born in the United States. I thought, unlike some of the other things, which sort of fall through the middle, are they fibs, are they... How do you get inside somebody's head? I thought that was clear and clean, so we used it. But the hardest thing to navigate is how do you, you know, how do you look at your, I'll use the front page because it's the easiest measure. How do you look at your front page every day and say, I'm covering something extraordinary, granted. I'm covering something that's unlike anything we've ever covered, granted. But somehow, I also don't want the New York Times to look like an oppositional newspaper. Because for the long-term life of the New York Times, that's not a healthy position to be in. But and do you think you've been successful? I do think I've been successful, but I think it's been really hard. Sure it is. And do I think that you and I could go to the archives of the New York Times and find days where we didn't succeed? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing I will own up to is that the, the beauty of newspapers, to be frank, they're honorable and mission-driven, but they're also really flawed. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could find some doozies in the back if you want. Mainly by my predecessors, but... <laughs> it, it's, look, it, it's one thing for me to pick up the paper and say, well, what has the idiot done today? 
It's another, it's another thing to think that the Times editors are asking themselves the same question. And, and, it's, and I don't know what I would do in your shoes, because, but I do know that we practice journalism, which is, a, it, 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 it is subject to certain kinds of limits of discourse yeah. and evidentiary limits yeah. and responsibility and all the rest of it. And, and I do know that there are limits to adversarialism. Yeah, I don't know right. what those limits are because he seems to transgress so routinely. Right. But I think the fear here is the, is, is the disempowerment of the times. Yeah, that's right. The, that's, that's the, the fear is the long-term, um, the long-term disempowerment of the times. But, but if, I can, if I can say one thing that will give you hope, <clears throat> the, the one thing I've, I'm... I'm addicted to the histories of newspapers. Perhaps Donald Trump has not happened before, but incidents where newspapers had to wrestle with this stuff, that's happened before. And sometimes they failed, sometimes not. I mean, I grew up in the South. You and I have talked about this. I think Southern newspapers wrestled with their own version of this. I think national newspapers wrestled with this in Vietnam. They did. I think they wrestled with, I mean, I, I, I find some comfort in almost every question I'm confronted with. Some predecessor has been confronted with it before, right? How do you, once it became clear that Vietnam was a tragedy and America was going to lose, you're the editor of the New York Times. Run that coverage. I think that must have been really difficult. So... Is part of the question the composition of your newsroom? Would you hire somebody for a, an important, influential, supervisory position on your editorial staff who is pro-Trump? I, don't, I have never asked. I, there's nobody ever believes this, but I'll say it. Suppose he comes in wearing a MAGA hat. <laughs> well, first off, I would never hire anybody who wore a cap. <laughs> um, I want... You, you, you actually can't ask that question. But did you, I go out... usually not shy. Right, but did I go out and find pe- journalists who had been in the military? Yes. Do I go out and try to find journalists who don't have um, the same backgrounds as traditional New York Times reporters? Do I try to find journalists who I can at least... Because t- you can't. I mean, the, I think the HR department would take me out in chains if I said, who did you vote for? But do I try to hire people who are from a different world where I think there's a possibility they voted for Trump? Sure, absolutely. But you're not actually forbidden to ask uh, their political opinion, I don't think. That's not a protected class under the... No, it's not. It's just, you know, if you believe that journal... I believe that journalists... I don't... I, I have never... Nobody ever believes this, but I am surrounded by a group of deputies. I have no idea who they voted for. None. Never asked. Wouldn't ask. So it would make me uncomfortable to ask that question. But if, you're, if the main, if the thrust of it is, do I want a newsroom where there are people who probably voted for Donald Trump? Absolutely. And I'd like those people, I'd like those people to have the courage, and I would like to encourage them to come in to me and call me out if they think I'm doing something that makes them uncomfortable. Let me shift this a little bit, because one of the concerns <clears throat> that, that I have is that the focus on Trump, and I'm guilty of focusing on Trump in this conversation, (laughs) the focus on Trump has diverted attention from really important, substantive, 
let's call it, I'll call it harms. I, I mean, I think Trump is, Trump, of course Trump distracts the press. But I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, if you, I don't think there's any shortage of stories about the tragedy of Yemen and America's involvement in Yemen. I don't think there's any, I mean, we maintain, have always maintained a full, fully formed bureau in Afghanistan. You know, we have spent more time covering Syria than anybody else. I, I'm not so sure that's true. I do think that, that Americans jump for the Trump story. But I think we work hard to make sure there's other stuff there, too. The way I think about running the newsroom, I walk in every year thinking, okay, there's the Trump story. But I also think I've got to, I've got to find out what the other big story of the year is. The first year of Trump, it was the Me Too story, which was the Harvey Weinstein story. I, my, you know, my, I think we were successful. We covered the big story that everybody was paying attention to, and then we came up with the other big story that people needed to pay attention to. This year, I think it was, yes, there was Trump, but we put just as much energy in Facebook and Google and the larger questions that were being raised by the platforms. What I would say to somebody who said, I'm worried that I'm spending too much time reading stories about Donald Trump, what I would say is, you should read a lot of stories about Donald Trump. This is a historic moment. He has, you know, transformed regulation in America. He, he has transformed the judiciary. And everybody may be distracted by the sort of, you know, the, the Stormy Daniels and the other stuff over here. You should pay a lot of attention to Donald Trump. I mean, this is a, this is a transformational moment in American political life. This is but, not but, a, this is not a, I would argue this is not like a, a clown show that when right. it's all over, everybody's going to go... I think this is a very powerful moment. I think it's a mistake to assume to assume that Donald Trump is not responsible for some of the large changes in the government, whether he understands how government works and knows how to pull the machinery like LBJ did, that's a different question. But to assume that he is not surrounded, that he, he did not choose the trade war, to assume that he did not choose to... to to make immigration a national issue, I think is to underestimate what's going on. Let me shift a little bit. You've done, the Times has done some remarkably good investigative work. What I want to know is, uh, one of the things that we as journalists always (laughs) expected was that when you run a story and you've got them dead to rights, you get traction in the political system. Yeah. There's a way people say uh, there's going to be a prosecutor who's going to hold it, going to announce an investigation. There'll be a legislative hearings. It'll be whole, uh, called. There's there's an echo. Yeah. Somebody notices it and they're going to react to yeah. it. And we're we coming out of the period now with the Democrats back in, in con- with Congress. This may change, but I'm just wondering how it feels to time and again <laughs> be breaking these you know, stupendous stories. Yeah. And then. The, electric, the political system just rolls over and goes back to sleep. So when I was, a, when I was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, um, I did a bunch of stories along with some colleagues about just corruption in the government. That's all we did. Nothing ever happened. I once spent a month investigating a, an alderman who made every supermarket in his ward carry the, his soft drink. And I worked to prove it. I got all these people telling me all this anonymous stuff. I 
went to every supermarket. I counted the bottles. And I went to him and I said, so my investigation shows that you have all these soft drink bottles, et cetera, et cetera. And you're made. He said, oh, yeah, no, what I do is I make the supermarkets carry my soft drink. <laughs> and, and what I do is I tell them, if they don't carry my soft drinks, they're not going to get zoning change. Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, I, why did I spend a month doing this? I should have just called you. After I, would do those, after I would do those stories, nothing changed. One of the guys who I wrote about 10 stories about, and I left Chicago in the 80s, got indicted two weeks ago. So I would go on panels with the, with the investigative reporters for the Minneapolis papers. And I would get in here, and you know, the guys I was writing about were like stuffing people in trunks. They would write about guys who, politicians who like, wrote the wrong name on their expense accounts. And there were huge scandals. And the way I, so the, I have come to believe that you do the work. Yes, it bothers you that it doesn't have impact. Or that it has, my own belief is that things have longer term impact. They affect, they're like dropping a little bit of food coloring in the water. And eventually the water changes color. But I think if you just do it for the impact, you're going to make yourself crazy. So you do it for the craft. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And if you, do, if, you, if you are expecting dramatic impact, I mean, the Harvey Weinstein stories, I remember just before we published them thinking, this is going to be a pretty good story. Nobody's heard of Harvey Weinstein. This will, I mean, this will be good. Did you, I, nobody, I, who, who would have thunk that that created a national movement? So you never know. You do the work. I'm going to change the subject kind of almost entirely. So let's just imagine a hypothetical under which there's an asteroid heading toward the Earth, and it's going to hit in a year's time. And, so I have um, time to pe- put people in place to cover it. So uh, there is a possibility of deflecting it, possibility of destroying it, part possibility of mitigating the harm. There's huge preparations that are needed because depending on where it hits, different people will be impacted in different ways. There is basically only one story. That story is the asteroid. But I actually believe what I'm about to say is true, which is that I don't know that we're so far from that now with respect to climate change. And I'm just wondering whether you're satisfied. You know, I don't, I don't, want, to, boy, I don't want to sound like a PR guy for the New York Times. But I guess that's part of what it be. I mean, we devoted a whole issue of the magazine to climate change. We've done three full special sections. Do I, do I think... We should do even more, yes, because I think it's the story of our time. Yes, I think, I think we have done a lot. I think we've done more than anybody else. I've, I'm past being frustrated with an in, when an investigative story doesn't have impact because I've learned. I'm frustrated that the, the, the constant drumbeat of large, ambitious coverage about climate change does not seem to move the, the discussion. I, I agree with that. I think that's... Um, and I guess when I hear the question... It makes me want to turn up the volume even more. I mean, the volume's pretty high for us, but maybe it should be even higher. I'm going to ask you one more question and then open it up to the floor. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear you talk a little about the rest of the news media. What do you think they're doing wrong? You, you've, you know, the, the Times <clears throat> is not only survival, but its, its, yeah. its uh, success has been remarkable, but it's also sort of 
a little bit by itself. Yeah. And it's sort of benefited from a flight to quality. It's benefited from yeah. the destruction of the regional newspaper business. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is it that people elsewhere in the media are failing to learn from you? And, and can you be doing something to help them? Yeah. Well, the biggest, I mean, I'll run through the biggest crisis is local journalism. It, right. breaks, it breaks. I don't know what the answer is going to be for local journalism. Um, I mean, I think local newspapers in the next two, I think we're at the moment, and I think over the next two or three years, a lot of local newspapers are going to go out of business. I don't know how anybody's going to make money or what the model is for covering you know, the, the parts of New Orleans I grew up in, um, or Newark, or, or you know, I don't, I don't that, that to me is scary, and it's the most troubling part about the plight of New The New York Times will be fine. I worry a lot more about the Newark Star-Ledger and the Miami Herald, and and if and I don't think we've come up with another way to cover schools in Miami. And those papers have already been gutted. We are having a very interesting, you know, intellectual discussion about how the New York Times manages this this very compelling time. But I have a newsroom of fifteen hundred people, bigger than it's ever been, and then I go to visit local newspapers, and they're down to the bone. And I think that's a crisis. Um, other papers, I mean, I, th- I think Fox News is dangerous. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't. I don't. I think. I don't think Fox and Friends is journalism. Um, and I think it's dangerous. And I think they have outsized power because they happen to speak directly to the president. And I think what they practice is an odd kind of propaganda. And I'm not saying that because. They're regarded as right-wing media. I think it's. I think it's dangerous. Um, I think the way they sort of, you know, push facts aside. I, I think. I think that's scary for the country. I think the Washington Post um, is. If you want me to run through the list, I think the Washington Post is doing great stuff. Um, I think the combination of the arrival of Jeff Bezos, a very good editor, um, may, I think they're doing great. So uh, I'm going to just take the interlocutor's uh, privilege and ask you one concluding question. You're reaching that point. There's a mandatory retirement age at the Times, I understand, of 65. Yeah. And uh, you're... For the, for the ma- not for everybody. The uh, masthead, yeah. for, the masthead has to step uh, okay. down at 65. And so you can take a pay cut and stay around? <laughs> no, no, no. But traditionally, the executive editor leaves the building at 65, which is... Which, which, which I will do. Okay, so... But that's you, 30 years about, from now. <laughs> what, what, so what do you want them to say about you on your way out the door? What's your legacy? Oh, boy. Um, you should never write your own legacy, right? I mean, if you ask me what I feel is, um, is the thing I'm proudest of at the New York Times, I, I do think that in the last couple three years, we truly became a publication that understood how to take advantage of all the innovations that were, that were laid in front of us. And I think for too long, newspapers, but I'm speaking of mine, looked at all of the innovation, all the possible innovations, and looked at them and got nervous. And I think we're now at the point where if somebody comes to me and says, Dean, we have this thing, and it's just going to make storage round, and they're going to do this amazing thing, but they're going to show people what life is like in Yemen. I'm going to say yes. And I think that's what I would like to have accomplished.
Others will have to tell me whether I did, but that's what I would hope to have accomplished. Well, Dean Baquet, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. We've been listening to Dean Baquet in conversation with yours truly, Ed Wasserman. This has been On Mike, a podcast presentation of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Technical facilities for On Mike are underwritten by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation. Our producer is Luis Hernandez. I'm Dean Ed Wasserman. Thanks for listening, and please join us next time.